life is a dash, a rush, a race. Everything seems to happen faster and faster and quicker than before. There was a time when life was slow. You were five. And you longed to be five and a half. And it took ages and ages and ages to get there. No one says I'm 42 and a half, actually. One second you're pushing your kid on a swing, next they want the car keys, next they're pushing you. This week, Rachel, our eldest daughter, had her options evening for GCSEs. There are two things totally and utterly wrong about that. The first is, she's not old enough. GCSEs? Who's kidding who? We came to this church just a few years ago and her only option was to crawl. GCSEs? What? The second totally, totally horrendous thing is that I'm not old enough either. (laughs) And there I was in embarrassing dad category at school. Shh, don't do that, don't say that. Don't that, shut up. I'll be dribbling soon. And it all goes so fast. And so I was pretty low. I was pretty low. And I came on Tuesday night for a pleasant evening. And I hope those of you who came on Tuesday night for a pleasant evening got at least a pleasant evening. A lovely meal, good conversation, got to think a bit. And you would not believe it. Someone, a member from this very church, someone who I trusted, someone who I thought I could count on as a friend, sister in Christ, yes, it was a woman, a partner in the gospel, delivered the most insulting, most hurtful, most degrading comment I have ever heard in a very long time. Listen, I'm not 40 yet. (laughs) For heaven's sake. Just out of my teens. I think I've left puberty behind. Heading somewhere into adulthood. What are you trying to do? But life is a dash and it gets faster and faster and faster. For those of you who are twice my age, you are going so fast, it's no wonder your head is in a spin. Rushing does have its place though, doesn't it? You know, if you're late for a plane, then rush. If you're late home and your wife has cooked you a lovely meal, then rush. If you're late home and your wife has cooked you a lovely meal that's already been eaten now by the dog, rush, or maybe not. But is rushing the greatest strategy for living our lives? You see, when you rush, you make mistakes. When you rush, you make poor decisions. Have you ever made a stupid reply to an email because in your rush, you only read half of it? No, neither have I. Uh, Have you ever half read a notice, not even seen the notice that was there, missed an important moment, blanked someone in the street, all because you're caught up in the rush? When you rush, you don't take uh, hardly any account or very little account of what's going on around you. Because we were in a rush, Kerry and I nearly entered the wrong church and sat through the wrong wedding. In our rush to find the church, we thought that the wedding we could see therefore must be our wedding. And that's how egocentric you become when you're rushing. Everything's about you. You can't see it from any other perspective. The world is revolving around you. So get 
caught up in what's immediate and we get so trapped in what seems so urgent and so consumed by now our vision is tunneled, our senses seem dull. And when we're in that mode, rush mode, life mode, it's very difficult, almost impossible to step back a little bit and ask some of life's bigger, more poignant, more pressing, more urgent questions. What really matters in my life? When did we really ask that question of ourselves? What's really important to me? As I look back over the sweep of my years, what do I want the dominant things to have been uh, about? And if you believe in your heart that God wants the very best for you, and not every Christian believes in their heart that God wants the very best for them, But if you believe in your heart that God wants the best for you, then you can ask what is the greatest question of all. What about my life really matters to God? Because he above all others wants the very best for me. That's what lies really behind this one month to live campaign. It's an invitation to step back, step outside for a while, the rush, to to get outside our tunnel vision and to ask the bigger question, about what's really important. Why is it framed in this way? Well, it's framed in this way because you don't need to be in pastoral ministry for very long to realise that when people discover that their time on earth is short, many things, if not everything in their life, takes on a very different perspective. Things that once seemed so important, so dominating, so necessary, seem so trivial, so inconsequential. And other things that we paid little attention to in the rush suddenly seem of overwhelming importance. People seem to discover an amazing clarity about how they want to choose to spend their time. They have a renewed focus on their relationships. They say things that should never have been left unsaid. They forgive and offer forgiveness. They're no longer trapped in everything being now. Tragically and publicly has been the story of Jade Goody. If you've been on another planet, uh, Jade is a celebrity made famous through Big Brother and uh, lifestyle TV programs like that and has been diagnosed, as you will know, with terminal cancer and given just a few weeks to live. And she started to reflect very publicly on how that's altered her perspective. In an interview just a week or so ago, she talks about the way she looks at life differently. One of the things she's done is to get married to her partner Jack, albeit to raise a lot of money for the care of their two boys. But when asked about the ceremony, she said, it's nothing like the kind of wedding that I wanted, but at this stage I just need to be married. She's anxious to get her two boys christened, quote, because she wants them to understand something about God. She talks about reading her Bible a lot. She talks about how she's let go of all her grudges. There's no time to hold on to all the anger and bitterness anymore. When you go through, quote, something like this, there there is just no point. You just don't have any room to hate anymore when you just don't have too long to live. She talks, too, of resisting her husband's attempts to take her all around the world to try and find some kind of cure. I don't want to spend my last days like that. I want to be here with him and with the boys. People's perspective changes when they realise that time on earth is limited. The things that really matter rise to the surface. 
Relationships become central. Things that are broken get repaired. And saying stuff that's been left unsaid comes a whole lot easier. But why wait, hey? Why wait to live that way? Why wait? And that's the call of this whole journey. But God says, live this way now. Understand how precious what you have is now. Don't wait till then. And so the question that we're asking is, what would I do if I knew? If I knew that I had only one month to live? It's a clarifying question because it clarifies, or at least helps, to clarify in our lives what's really important. Many people get to the end of their lives with a set of regrets. They can see the things then that really matter. My prayer is that we see them now. Let's see what really matters now and not then. And so it's the question that's the cry of our hearts that says, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I've focused on the wrong things. I don't want to tie them to the top of the ladder to discover it's just against the wrong wall. I want to discover these things now, to live it now, to truly live now. And the psalmist understood this. When the psalmist wrote, uh, however many years ago he did, thousands of years ago, he says, Lord, teach us. Teach us to number our days aright. Teach us to have a good perspective about the length of our lives. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. That we might make right and good choices. That we might live well. Teach us to have a realistic appreciation. But generally, all too often, we live as if we will always have tomorrow. Hey, I can go to bed angry tonight because I'll still have tomorrow. Tomorrow I can do that with my spouse. Tomorrow I can make that promise to my kids come true. Tomorrow I can say those things I know I must say to my parents, to my friends, to my sister, brother, whoever it might be. Tomorrow when things have settled down, I'll start serving God then. I'll get back to reading my Bible. I'll get in touch with those friends I've lost touch with. I'll reach out to my neighbour. Tomorrow I'll do that. And we live as if tomorrow is always, always, always available. A never-ending repeat. But of course, we know that it isn't. We don't fear the fact, do we? That one day our tomorrows will come to an end as we celebrate it on Tuesday. For me to live, Christ to die, gain. Whoopee! There's a sense in which there being no tomorrow uh, accelerates the process of my transformation uh, to its completion. But perhaps we should fear not the end of tomorrows, but the waste of our todays. And so we make our days count that we might, that, sorry, we count each day that we might make each day count. And in a different part of scripture, Paul says the same thing to the church in uh, Ephesus. He's talking about how evil the days are. And in that context, the days were evil and they were anticipating that the end of the world would come pretty quickly. They couldn't imagine it getting any worse. And, and, and Paul says, look, the time is short. Be very careful then how you live. Making, sorry, I should say live, <laughs> making the most of every opportunity. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. You have, says Paul, a finite moment. It won't go on forever, so be careful. The faster you rush, the less you think. Be wise in how you live. Hey, so will you take the challenge? Will you try and ask the question day by day? Hey, if this was my last month, would I do this today? Would this matter most to me 
now? Or would it be something different? To ask this clarifying question so that we might not dash to live, but truly learn to live the dash. To live that dash that one day will be written between two dates, the day of your birth, the day of your death, and the little dash in the middle representing the whole of your life. Let's live that dash. Let's pack that dash with every ounce of meaning and purpose before a living God that we possibly can. And so as we gather Sunday by Sunday, as we gather weekly in our small groups, as we read the daily reading plan that you picked up as you came in, as you follow the One Month to Live uh, books, if they ever arrive, and so on, we're looking at four key principles that will help us to live the moment, to live the dash. We find them in the life of Jesus. And Jesus, of all people, knew that his time was short. His death hung over him, quite literally, didn't it, from the day that he was born. So we look at these things that come out of his life. Number one, Jesus lived passionately. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus lived a full octane life. You can live life shallow or you can live life deep. You can live life embracing or you can live life withdrawing. You can live life closed Or you can live life open. You can live life at the centre or you can choose to live at the edge. And I cannot imagine, looking at the world in which we live, a world of adventure, a world of risk, a world to be explored of sights and smells and sounds, a world of things to delight in, a, a world to take our breath away, that the God of heaven intended us to live small. What do you think? it just somehow doesn't fit. That the God who made all this and the dynamic, self-giving, vibrant, life-giving God that we read out in the Bible intended us to live small. And yet I find myself far too often, don't you, living small. Hello? Someone just comfort me for a minute, if it's only me. We live small. We live shallow. We live closed. We live down. And yet Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Jesus said, I've come that you might not live small. That you might not live closed. You might not live down. I've come that you might have life. Life isn't measured by the number of breaths, as someone has said by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. We're called to live. We're called to live in the divine way. Hands up if you've read The Shack. The Shack. Oh, it's even on the front. Hold it up, Andrew. Look at that. He's a teacher's pet or what? <laughs> Slip, isn't it? Good on, burn it. Yeah, I said, yeah. Oh, well, there we are. Now plug for the bookstore. The fascinating thing about it, it's just a novel that tries to unpack the vibrancy of life that there is within God. It does that particular task exceptionally well, I think, and opens our eyes to the kind of God he is who would make a kind of world like this, albeit recognising that this world has gone horrendously wrong. Yet all too often in response to God, we live small, we live safe, and our goal is to be comfortable, safe, and secure. Hey, that's good Middle England, isn't it? 
Come on, Ireland. Sorry, who said that? Who said that? Sorry. It's a terrible abuse of my position to say that in the midst of a sermon. But we're comfortable. We live safe. We live, those are things. Hey, do you want to be comfortable? We all put up our hands up. Do we want to be safe? Ooh, we all put our hands up. Do you want to be secure? We'd all have our hands. And yet somehow God says, I've put you here to live. To live the adventure of life. To risk living open. To live to risk living out there, to risk living alive. We coast along and life happens to us rather than living the life and in his name making it happen. I think back to those ages that we talked about at the beginning and often reinforces that, I think, in the way that we talk about ages. Under 10, no problem. You're really excited about getting to the next age. In your teens, no problem either because you're 13, but if someone asks, you might say 16. <laughs> you know, because you're, you're nearly 16, even though you're only 13, and you're always looking ahead. But then it comes to a very formal end when almost ceremoniously we say, you become 21. Almost as if a warning is being said that something is coming to an end. And as if that's not bad enough. To make absolutely certain that you have understood that on turning 21, the life and vitality of childhood has been completely snuffed out to be replaced with the inevitability of being an adult, we say you turn 30. Yuck! Who wants to turn 30 like some milk that soured? Oh, gee whiz, thanks. You've turned 30 and you're pushing 40. (laughs) It's all slipping away and you've reached 50 like no one else believed that you probably would, but you've reached 50 and your dreams are gone. You make it to 60 and so you're gone. You become 21, you turn 30, push 40, reach 50, make it to 60. By now you've built up so much speed, you hit 70. (laughs) 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 Do you you see it coming? And you reach 80. And then there's a bit of grace just at the end. See, it's almost as if you're going through life as a spectator of your own life, just watching it unfold as the years go by. Absolutely, diddly what you can do about it. Life is just happening to you. Sit back, take it all, hit 70, it's all downhill. You might reach 80. But there is a little bit of grace in the 90s because people tend to say, I'm just 90. Just 92. We get back to those justs of childhood. And then magic. I'm not allowed to say that in church. I don't mean magic, witchcraft stuff, don't write to me, I just mean great, genius stuff, you get to a hundred, and then you go right back to childhood, you say, hey, I'm a hundred and one and a half, <laughs> isn't that brilliant? But for most of it, you've been trapped in this, oh, 30, 40, 50, 60, bang, it's 70, three score years and ten, you're dead, mate, Whew, thanks, almost as if I'm a spectator to my own life. And Jesus says, no, I've come that you might live this life. Hallelujah. Not just exist through it, not just suffer under it, not just put up with it, but somehow live through it. There's this fantastic quote that says, a ship is safe in harbour, but that's not what ships are for. It's brilliant. How many times do we live in the harbour? Hey? How many times? Helen Keller, who went through more than uh, enough, wrote, wrote this. Security is mostly just a superstition. 
It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Life is either a daring adventure, or it's nothing at all. Wow. So we live passionately. Turn with me to page 1081 in the Bibles in front of you, would you? It was just before the Passover, John chapter 13, verse 1, page 1081. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. He's lived with death hanging over him. He knows it's now almost there. It says these beautiful words, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus loved completely. Jesus loved completely. That's how he spent not only the whole of his life, but John says, listen, these last few hours, in fact, of Jesus' life are packed with loving completely. And as the rest of the story unfolds, you will know if you know that part of the story, But what happens next is that Jesus invests his time and energy into his disciples, loving them extravagantly, loving them completely, as he washes their feet, even though one of them would betray him, and then as he died on a cross, because all of us have betrayed him. He loved completely. And the biggest regrets people always have at the end of their life are to do with relationships. As Rob Parsons would always say, nobody has heard to say on their deathbed, I wish I spent more time at the office. There is something deep inside us, all of us, that comes to the fore when we think about what's really precious. Never was this more apparent on the day that those planes hit the Twin Towers. You maybe, heard, maybe you've heard me talk about this before. In those most horrific of moments, when people quite literally knew that they didn't have a month to live, they had minutes to live, what did they do? If they couldn't escape, the people in those soon-to-collapse towers were desperate to communicate, to get one last message out to someone, a parent to a child, a child to a parent, spouse to one another, friend to friend, neighbour to neighbour. And weird you might think it is, but everyone wanted to say exactly the same thing. It didn't matter where you were born, how you'd lived, what type of lifestyle was around you. They all wanted to say the same thing. Because at heart, when the pressure's on, what matters most comes to the surface. And what was the message? It had absolutely nothing to do with status or achievements or money or business deals. Nothing to do with looks or holidays or cars or houses. All the things that for the people in those towers, they had lived their lives as if they were dominant. But now they didn't matter at all. Nobody wanted to talk about them. No one was interested. Just one thing. All the same to pick up that phone and say one last time, you know, I love you. I love you. I love you. It was the same on that hijacked plane, wasn't it? 
as it was heading towards the Pentagon, what did people do? They got on their phones. They got on their phones. Why? To say the rubbish hadn't been put out that morning. That bill student hadn't been paid. The bath still isn't clean. They didn't mention their company shares or the strength of the dollar. But they got on their phones and they said, look, this matters. I can see now more than at any other time in my life how much this really matters. And I've called to say, I love you. I love you. Why do we wait till then to say that? If the people in the towers and the people on that plane are a typical cross-section of people in our world, many of them would be saying those words that they hadn't uttered for months, maybe even years. Why? Why? What will it take for us to live now? So Jesus lived passionately, loved completely, and thirdly, learned humbly. It says in Philippians 2, in fact, t- turn to it with me. Would you Philippians 2, uh, verse 5? If someone can find it, let's, uh, let, let's shout out the number. 1179, thank you. Philippians 2, verse 5. Your attitude, yours and mine, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, What did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. So what did God do? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God uh, the Father. But notice just that little bit in in the middle, verse 8 Second part of verse 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, therefore God exalted him. If we want God to lift us up in this life, not in that kind of way that people might look to us and worship us, but lift us up that we might be in his purpose. The only way I understand that happens is if we humble ourselves first. The only way God works in our lives is if we humble ourselves first. And the, 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 the most pressing, obvious way to humble ourselves is to put our lives under the authority of God's Word. To say, Lord, this is what you have said. This is your Word. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to be under it because it comes to me from heaven. And that's why through this one month to live, journey. We want to encourage you every day to read your Bible. When you came in, you were given, I don't know, you were given something. You were given loads of things, weren't you? you One like that, okay? There's something to read every day. Every day. You say, I don't understand it and I don't know stuff about it. that's, That's fine, but just start reading it. And the more you read it, the more you'll find you understand it. As you read it open before God. So we want you to study it every week in your small groups. We want you to come on Sundays that we might meditate around God's Word like we're doing now. But we want, as we start this journey, to encourage you to do something else that really gets God's Word deep in us. We've talked about it a lot over the years and probably find it, found it hard to uh, sustain it in our lives. And I'm talking about memorizing it. So we're going to have another go and Andrew's going to come and just speak to us about how we might have a go at this.
So we've probably all, <clears throat> or some of us have had a go at this, uh, either when we were five or possibly slightly later. And, and you might have bad memories of uh, memorizing the Bible from Sunday school, or, or you might have never tried it and think you have the worst um, Oh, yeah, the worst memory in the world. Um, I'd, uh, that was pretty lame, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, I'd urge you to think again, and there are just three reasons, then we'll talk about what we're going to do. It, it, Simon just talked about meditating on God's Word, and that isn't the sort of uh, transcendental OM type uh, meditation um, that uh, you know people talk about. What the Bible calls meditation is thinking about not emptying our minds but filling it and thinking about and chewing on and really getting inside of God's word and, and as we do that we'll understand God and his will for us in a much deeper way and we'll grow to love him more and in memorizing the Bible we can do that whenever and wherever we are, we don't have to carry our Bibles with us. It's there in our heads. And if we're uh, traveling around or lying in our beds and we can't get to sleep, whatever it might be, we can think about God's word. And second thing <clears throat> is that we know that Jesus had large chunks of the Bible memorized. And that was the Old Testament in his day. And we know that because when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he quoted the Bible right back to the devil. Now, the devil had bits of the Bible memorized too, by the way, um, but Jesus knew uh, how to counter that. And Paul talks about this when he talks about putting on the whole armor of God so that we can fight and take our stand against the devil's schemes. And that sword that we have is the word of God. Now, we can wield the Bible, actually the physical Bible, but we don't always have it with us. And so if we've got the Bible in our minds and in our hearts and we're thinking about it and we've memorized it, then um, when we're tempted to say something we shouldn't or do something we shouldn't or harbor unforgiveness or we feel afraid or we feel anxious, then if we've got the Bible memorized, then we can remember that God says, have no anxiety about anything, or I'm with you always, or fear not, I've called you by name, you are mine. And that's why the Psalms say, I've hidden your word in my heart. This is Psalm 119, verse 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if you want a sword that you can use anywhere, anytime, you need parts of the Bible memorized. And the third thing is that in memorizing the Bible, it helps us as we talk with our friends. If they're Christians, we might be reminded of an encouraging word, uh, a verse that's been particularly helpful to us that we can share with them. And if they're not yet Christians, um, we know that the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And so while I'm not suggesting that we argue our friends uh, into the uh, kingdom and to becoming Christians by quoting vast screeds of scripture at them, um, I do think that as we have that Bible in our hearts, sometimes God will bring a particular verse or a particular passage to mind. And the Bible and the word of God has power in that situation at a crucial moment. So three quick reasons for meditating on God's word, for fighting uh, when we're tempted, and for talking and helping our friends. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more, I hope, uh, in the evening of March the 15th in a couple of weeks at uh, the next evening communion service. So how are we going to do it? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to memorize a verse each week through the year using a scheme which um, quite a few churches are using. Um, and it's a scheme that's for the whole family. So you don't have to be um, over the age of 21 in order to do it. In fact, you can probably be as young as five or six and you'll be amazed how much um, children can memorize. And everybody will find their own way to memorize, but I've put on the website a really good way 
which is basically on a Sunday, you read the verse and the passage uh, around it in, con- in context, and you ask the Lord to help you, uh, to help you memorize it. And we, we mustn't forget that. This is not some mental academic discipline. This is something God wants us to do, and he'll help us if we ask him. Then on Monday, we read the passage aloud ten times. Tuesday, we cover it over, and we read it again aloud ten times, but you're allowed a peek if you can't remember it. And then Wednesday to Saturday, you kind of keep doing that, but you also go over the previous week's passages as well. Now, I've covered that really quickly. Next week, we're going to give you a bookmark with all of the passages for the rest of this year and also um, these hints set out. And if you're um, web-enabled, if you look on the website, you'll find it all on there. I think it's hidden under the news section uh, somewhere, but if you search, search around, you'll find it. Um, I've been trying this for the last couple of months. I've sort of done this on and off over the years with, with um, not a great deal of success, has to be said. And I've been trying this since January, and it does really seem to work well. Uh, but I'm not going to recite them now in case it all goes horribly wrong. Okay, so, um, so you'll just have to trust me, or maybe you can find me afterwards and test me or something. And by the way, you know, that's a really good reason, too, why we're going to do this as a church. Because we can help hold ourselves accountable, can't we? We can just, you know, for a bit of fun, ask our friends... Have you remembered it this week? Not, not, not in any kind of legalistic way, but just in a good way, just to encourage each other. Um, I said that all ages can do this, and, and if you've got a young family, I'd really encourage you to try this with the whole family. The scheme's designed for anyone to use, and as I say, you'll be amazed how young children can learn uh, the Bible. So you might have memories of this being a chore when you were a kid, but... I'm not suggesting you make it like that, but maybe if you were to sit down with your family and in an evening, have fun together, memorizing the verses, finding creative ways of doing that, that would be a fantastic way to grow as a family, wouldn't it? And just think of that foundation that you're laying for your children in years to come, and they'll, they'll thank you for it, uh, believe me. So, final thought. There's a wonderful promise in the Bible from Jesus uh, in John chapter 15, which um, Jesus gave to his disciples the night before he died. And it says this, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So, memorizing the Bible doesn't mean that all your prayers are answered immediately, but it will mean that we'll get to know God much better, and so much better, that the prayers that we pray will increasingly become his prayers and not ours. So let's give it a try together. And I promise you, the Bible promises you more importantly, that it will definitely be worth the effort. Thanks, Andrew, very much. So finally then, he learned humbly, but he left boldly. The time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out to Jerusalem. And if you know the context of the Old Testament prophecies about a prophet unable to die outside Jerusalem, you'll understand the the weight of significance attached to what Luke is saying. Are you ready to leave boldly? There isn't a more important question this morning, I don't think. In fact, there might be some of you here, do you know, and you're just going, hey, I'm not, I'm not actually sure whether I'm ready. Uh, and if there were 30 days to go, you'd be in an absolute panic because you're not sure what would happen next. I want to say two things this morning. My heart 
goes out to you if you feel like that. And the second part of the first thing is that God's heart goes out to you if you feel like that. God does not want you to live wondering what happens next. You can know for certain where you're going and to whom you are going to in the here and now. And it takes a heck of the stress out of living to know where you're going and to whom you're going to. And that's his gift to you. We're journeying towards Easter. We're journeying to that part in the story when he died on a cross and he said, I I do this for you. It's for you. And everyone was in two minds. Well, maybe he's just making it all up. Maybe he doesn't know what he's on about. Maybe this bit about his blood being poured out for our forgiveness, he doesn't know. But then three days later, he came back to life and people said, wow, he knew. He knew. And no other man has changed the world like Jesus because no other man has lived and died for us like Jesus. And you can know that because he's alive, you can be absolutely certain about life. And is the first fight of verse the, the Jesus, the, the resurrection and the, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me, that's big enough for us, isn't it? Whoever, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus says to Mary at that point in the story, Do you believe this? And Mary goes, yes. Yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ. At this point, at the beginning of the journey, I'm saying to you, have you got it sorted out? Because you can. You do not need to live anxious, scared, fearful about what happens next. And so Jesus said many things. And when he was in a conversation with Nicodemus with those really well-known words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus talks about going on ahead. He says, look, I'm going to go on ahead and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back that you might be with me where I am. How can you trust the words of this guy? Find me another guy who died and lives again. Find me another Jesus who's changing lives all over the world today. So what do you need to do? Well, we were looking at those verses in Acts, weren't we, just a few weeks ago? You need to turn around. Peter said, if you're ready, you've just got to turn around and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, Put your trust, which is what baptism is a sign of, put your trust in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says elsewhere, the Holy Spirit in you is like a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. How do I know that I'll go to heaven? Because a little bit of heaven already lives in me. Ah, thank you. You can know that. You can know a little bit of heaven in you. You go, hey, this is cool. I know because it's in me already. I'm experiencing it now. I don't have to wait. 
For some of you, this one month to live challenge, the baptism bit will be the challenge for you. Hey, you haven't settled that. Sort that out, this journey. Get baptized Easter Sunday. What better Sunday to get baptized? Live boldly. Because we know where we're going. And we know to whom we are going. For others of us, we settled that years ago, frankly. And it's not an issue. What's of greater issue is that I might get to the end of my life and I'll look up into Father God's eyes and I'll wonder what will he say. And I want with all my heart for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. If that's you, are you going to live like that? You're going to live for the audience of one. There was a story of uh, uh, a university football player. He wasn't much good. And because he wasn't much good, he wasn't put on to play very often. In fact, usually the coach would put him on towards the end of the game when it was obvious that the team was going to win and couldn't possibly lose. It was the last game of the season, very important game, and this young footballer bursts into the coach's office and says, I must start the game tonight. The coach says, I can't possibly promise you that. This is a really important game at the end of the season. One other thing you need to know is that every time this boy played, his dad came to watch him. Like the other dads, he was there on the sidelines cheering for him and rooting his son on. This dad was different though, this dad was blind. And even though he couldn't see, he'd never seen his son play, he was always there cheering for him and rooting him on. The boy spent the day wondering whether he was going to play that night. Just before the game was due to start, the coach said to him, okay, I don't know why, but I'm going to let you go on. You can start uh, at at the beginning of the game. And so he did. And this boy played like no one had ever seen him play before. Wherever the ball was, he seemed to be there. If there was a goal, he either scored it or was part of the build-up to it. It was just amazing. Before long, the end of the, it was the end of the game, the whistle was blown, they were running off the pitch. The coach came running up to him. Man, what got into you? How on earth did you play like that? He said, you need to understand one thing. He said, looking into the coach's eyes, my dad died last night. This is the first time he's seen me play. And I did it for him. I did it for him. I was playing for him. And look at the difference it made. I want to ask you, who are you playing for? Who are you playing for? When it all comes down, when we look into his eyes, who will we have been playing for? Let's pray.